we came up with a concept design for a 40-storey tower that reduced 15% of the concrete required to build it compared to the standard uh, residential tower of the same height, which is an amazing saving. Welcome to the business of architecture and design. This time, Ben Lawney, Senior Associate at PTID and a regular host of the podcast, is joined by Jonathan Cowell, Principal at Rothy Lohman. Passionate about design and specialising in technologies that enable complex geometries and 3D modelling, Jonathan has been with the practice for over five years, combining this with his long-time studio leader role at RMIT. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Ben and Jonathan. Principal at Rothy Lohman in Melbourne, Jonathan Cowell has been with the practice for five years. Following roles at Allenberg Fraser, ARM Architecture, Tolman Cal, and Byrne Hocking Weimar Architects. Specialising in technologies that enable 3D modelling and complex geometries, when Jonathan isn't managing the day to day running of the business or designing, he regularly lectures at various Australian universities and has taught at his alma mater, RMIT. We're delighted to have Jonathan here with us in the studio. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you, Ben. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, Jonathan? Well, I was born in Melbourne. I spent most of my life here. I've been lucky enough to have studied overseas as well. So mm-hmm. through you know, going to university at RMIT, I got an opportunity also to study in Japan. So I studied at TIT over there. For a um, year? Which was great. Was yeah, it? for around or six months, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but got to be the student of some really wonderful architects. And I was at a very interesting time, which was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, I have a family background that is involved in the arts and design and so on, and my father was an architect, and it was in the blood. The, it was in the blood. So it was sort of an interesting, yeah, growing up in the, in Melbourne. So I was always involved in, I guess, the arts side of the communities and so on in, in the city, which is obviously a fantastic city to grow up in for that mm-hmm. reason. So you have offices in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. Mm-hmm. How is the interoperability of these offices managed? Okay, good question. We have we have a, a unified platform when it comes to managing resources, costs mm-hmm. and so on um, that, that works across all the practices that where there's essentially we're updating teams, projects, pro- team matrices, costs and so on daily. Mm-hmm. But also I guess probably, I guess to talk to that a bit more carefully, at Rothy Lohman all the associates are, uh, are engaged with and responsible for the financial management of their teams as well. So it's like a mini P&L for each project? That's right. Yeah. And, and so they're, they have access to effectively the, the business's performance as well. So that's, sort of, that's all very open to the leadership group, um, which is obviously then very, very useful for them to make tactical decisions mm. uh, along the way. Yeah. And is that a, like a cloud-based software? Or it it, is it isn't at the moment, um, although we are talking about moving mm. uh, to the cloud and uh, evolving with the times. We've had, you know, since the NBN, it was being implemented. We've had a couple of pretty big hiccups along the way. Yeah, right. And, uh, you, you know, you don't know how badly you need it until the, the pipe gets constrained and uh, suddenly yeah. the information flows slow down between the studios. But that's being dealt with over time. And uh, 
I think I can't remember exactly which way it's gone yet, but I think we've got a fixed channel now between Sydney and Melbourne, mm-hmm. and we're, we're essentially going to be able to connect all the studios uh, in a safe way that, and, and so on in the future. And is that technology currently, I guess, getting in the road of better collaboration between the offices? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So maybe it's one of the biggest things we talk about is how do we stop it from getting in the road? That um, you know, project costs and you know, sort of managing managing forecasts mm. might might impede the ability or, or disincentivize someone from building a larger team to solve a to solve a problem if they were yeah. trying to manage their project in a lean fashion. So all the studios and all the all the teams are capable of completing all the tasks on their own. But part of my role is to manage a national yeah. kind of creative resource and and to sort of float across multiple projects as well and uh, irrespective of specific issues we might decide that we want to you know throw people in and and, and enhance a team for a short period of time mm-hmm. we all travel quite a lot so I'm, I'm visiting all the studios so we're always on the floor yep. you know trying to trying to find out what the issues are and the problems are and if we need to yeah we'll we'll sort of uh, enhance any team along the way and uh, and, and the reason why works, I guess, is because we do that at the principal level. So we're able to say, yeah. you know, to sort of calculate that risk that we'll, we'll invest additional mm-hmm. people, you know, we, when we, and so that sort of encourage the, the team leaders and project leaders and things to take that on board. And so if you're a project leader and, you, you know, you're, you're at a key moment in the project and you mm-hmm. say, I really need to chat to X in Brisbane and yep. three people from Sydney and yep. the team I've got in Melbourne – so that we can get our heads together and solve this problem. Yep. Do people fly? Do people VC? Yep. Do you have share sites? Yep. So we, we do all three. So as we're, as we're building teams and individuals, we're conscious that it takes time to get to know each other, so with new yep. staff and so on. So based on specifics of the team, we'll fly them together. So essentially any team that's – or people that's on average under three years, mm-hmm. like if you averaged out the – Yep. the collective across the team, uh, we'll fly them together to to do these workshops, regardless of how often. Yeah. Uh, and we, because we're, we do multiple projects at the same time, we use that as an opportunity for those people that are flying in to also workshop yep. on other projects and network and so on. So we really prioritise that human contact. But at the same time, we have um, everyone on the studio, I think, has uh, headsets mm-hmm. now. So everyone's uh, messaging and Skyping and, and sharing screens across the national yep. uh, studio constantly. So we have all sorts of series of workshops. We have, you know, workshops at our desks, yep. you know, so we can engage with multiple projects really quickly. We have sort of formal workshops in meeting rooms and so on. And that we also then use, you know, other meeting room Skype or we're, we're switching over to Teams now, but that, that kind of uh, video interaction as well. So we're, we use all three. So, um, you know, sort of people using networking at their desks, you know, people face-to-face and and then large meeting rooms where we're engaging across the floors. But it's really all based on, like I said, familiarity. So until until yeah. there's really good, strong individual cohesion between a group, we'll, we'll prioritise face-to-face. And so if you're sitting down doing a, you know, a resourcing forecast, mm-hmm. is that happening Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, and then a conversation about who shares? Or is there one resource in conversation? Currently, the states work on theirs independently. Then we meet for a national uh, conference. The national conference includes, I guess, that creative team that can float, that traditionally floats more often than not uh, across the national network sort of to fill the gaps and to connect. 
But because it's all done off one digital platform, everyone has, all the associates has sort of visual access, access to that yeah. data all the time. And then obviously you've kind of grown to 160. Is there plans for future growth? Definitely. You know, we see a lot of growth in all states, actually, mm-hmm. um, in particular Sydney. So, um, yeah, we see a lot of potential for our Sydney studio to, to grow over the next five years really significantly. But we're predicting growth in all in all three states. So we're, yeah, we're really busy. Our book's full and things are looking really good. But it's also, I guess, sustainable growth. You know, yes. we're, we're planning, uh, you know, we meet every six months to assess our business plan and our five-year projections and so on and, and test things against, you know, the past and et cetera. Yeah. But we're definitely seeking to grow over the next five-year period in all in all areas but particularly sydney and then new office locations or just in those three well we're looking at yeah new office locations so currently maybe across australia we're we're developing joint venture partners in those Mm -hmm. other states so predominantly the the three eastern seaboard states is where we we in the next five years where we see our bases being established but uh, it's not to say that within those states we might not have a smaller office you know in, in a more regional or uh, you know, other centre other than the capitals are moving forward. And what are the kind of ways that you're looking at implementing to future-proof your business? Mm. There's multiple strategies, of course. So, you know, diversification, yep. depth of market. Uh, so we're moving into, you know, new sectors from the business perspective, basically, all, you know, constantly, all the time. We've got a lot of scope to keep growing in, you know, various sectors, you know, yep. office, workplace, interiors, and um, obviously multi-res still. But also, I think what what's evolving is, again, the the sort of the idea of a strategic advisor role. Mm-hmm. You know that we've got because of the diversification of our business as it's spread across the eastern seaboard in particular, but through all the different regions and economics of those regions, uh, we've got an, a really really valuable sort of tapestry of knowledge, I guess, about um, well all the cities and and places and where. So we're able to starting to uh, leverage that knowledge in a strategic advisory sense, I guess, for clients. And we see that as a potential uh, in terms of an expertise and strategy, a potential area of growth as well. Obviously, the the business name is is based on the you know the founding partners. Yes, is there discussions about what happens to the business long term when you know perhaps those partners want to start stepping down? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there sort of a a succession planning, equity take up? Mm-hmm. The yeah the the business has a I'm not sure when they established it but they've had a succession plan in place I think for 15 years so a really long term strategy about how to bring on new partners you know um, spread equity I think we've got 18 shareholders mm-hmm. within the the practice so there's the the partners and then uh, some of our associates have shares there is a really clear succession plan but it's a quite a long term vision even though the practice has been around for a long time. It was founded with the original partners when they were very young. You know, two guys <laughs> in a bedroom, I think that's their story, chipping away and growing from there. So uh, they're going to be around for a long time. But we're really methodical, I guess, and really careful about the growth of the practice. And it's a really thorough succession plan in, and in terms of dealing with equity and so on. And it's it's constantly evolving. So that's, that's addressed and, and adjusted, I guess, year on year to make sure that we're bringing in new future leaders and yep. there's the correct growth and, and, and all of that um, uh, is managed. But, it's, um, you know, it's a very successful model, I think, and it's mm-hmm. working very well. So I think we'll avoid, I think, that that problem of that big jump, yes. you know, in the end when do you, you know, the founding partners decide to step away and the problems that that can cause. 
And I think that's also one of the things that attracted me to Rothie Lohman in the first place was the diversity of the leadership group and the fact that, um, you know, all the partners have really strong, you know, foundation with the client base and so on. Yeah, that's sort of a, I think we've got a lot of growth in the business, I think, before that that time comes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously you play a key role in the practice as a technical specialist as well. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of insights can you share into the role that you play as that technical lead? Yeah, my role, I guess, in the national design role is the sort of a, at high level, it's a glue between all the principles, you yep. know, sort of, so sort of stitching together teams and so on. But in a day-to-day practical sense, I focus a lot on design strategy and, you know, the concepts and ideas. But ultimately, uh, within the teams, we'll, we'll try and fill gaps, if technical gaps or strategic gaps or if I can't build a team to solve a problem I'll, I will engage with that specifically myself um, and that, but that still ranges sometimes you know it is a I'll, I'll prioritise a structural design issue that I might take on board as something that I'm interested in mm-hmm. or it could be a um, you know facade cladding detail yep. or something larger than that but um, I use the sort of I guess my experience and the tools that I've got under my belt to be able to be deployed more strategically within a project so I can move in and out relatively quickly if, if I can and then pass on that knowledge or solve that problem. And is it largely kind of a, a parametric analytical process? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say largely uh, any longer, but ultimately it is because it's um, – so sometimes it's specifically, literally, a parametric design yep. outcome of, of a particular object, geometry or problem. But in the nature of the the problems in which I tackle it, they're they're parametric in nature, mm-hmm. you know. So they're usually very um, you know analytical about about something, and we might solve it with a series of tools. But it's uh, you know, like I said, it's um, usually about optimization of a project in some way, if if possible. And are those tools often kind of built from the ground up, project specific? Yeah, they are. Although, as you as you know, that that's sort of. Uh, technology advances a lot of those tools are getting all them more ready-made and a lot of software now yep. comes with a lot of those ideas and tools embedded in them but nonetheless we still need to make specific uh, solutions to specific problems so just recently we've started to hire people that are facade technologists mm-hmm. you know because we know that moving forward you know the environmental performance of facades and, and so on is going to become much more important even in a very standard building yes um, so we need that expertise and all those experts as we bring them on board they all come uh, with a parametric yeah, background a toolbox toolbox yeah those individuals we've got one key individual in Queensland who we're starting to find ways of deploying that person across multiple projects and essentially he'll be building parametric and design tools to solve specific things to then mm-hmm. hand over to the to the project team and other things so they can manage something that's complex about their project, whether it's optimising a documentation sequence or, or you know, creating something that allows them to test different ways of cladding something or, you know, solving really complex uh, documentation delivery cycles. But also, yeah, as underpinning that is an experience in making things at a, at a high level and that's becoming more important. And as we bring on those people, my, my role will predominantly be focusing more and more on design Yep. situations specifically and you know we'll get the more highly trained specialist to take <laughs> over that early bird entries for idea 2020 are coming to a close and we'll finish on the 30th of april get your entry in now to enjoy the discount
how are you finding the integration of sort of engineering, your modelling, and then potentially that becoming utilised in fabrication? And in my view, underutilised uh, or unexplored in terms of its real depths aspect yep. of our industry, but it's essential to moving forward. So in my background, in my career, those all those things were tied together um, seamlessly all the way through all the time. But in the speculative commercial side of the industry, that they're all separated out by the nature of the contract and the process, which actually causes problems, which is what adds to cost and risk in my view. So as you all know, the you know the in a speculative sense, people want a permit before they engage all the consultants. You know to yep. to fully release all their information or engaged, and you miss out on a lot of information. So one way around it, and we're we're sort of fostering closer and closer relationships with our consultant partners over time, is that we, you know, using I guess parametric tools and working ugly process, we're finding yep. ways of connecting and getting IP, sharing IP amongst these professionals earlier in a project to get better outcomes. And as we are able to demonstrate the value, um, we've got more and more developers who are willing to start to spend more money up front to get those yep. relationships going. But they're absolutely essential. And uh, one of the ways we can save time with our, say, say for example, structural engineers, you know, we, if we want to study options, if we work together and share it, you know, like, like let's call it a, like a structural static modelling Yep. you know, analysis tool. Or we can share it using Grasshopper, mm-hmm. just using vector lines to do multiple column placements so that they can then um, import into their static modelling software directly and, and test results without having to draft it and those yes. sorts of things. And so sharing scripting platforms so that we can, uh, you know, optimise those engagements is really important. I mean, little things like um, also respecting other people's knowledge, you know. So, for example, on a large apartment building, we were the first group that asked for the slab deflection plan from the engineers that they produce when they design any large building. Um, but architects never asked for it. But if you see, for example, where the slabs, you know, if you actually mm. look at it, you see where all the costs are because of where the sagging of the slab yep. go. If you then optimise where all the service runs are, so you cut voids where it's sagging, you reduce that load, you save yes. costs, you know, create efficiencies in the structural performance of the slab, those kinds of things. So... We're really interested in seeing that data, you know, and seeing and sharing as much of that data. So we're using technology to find ways of sharing it really quickly without putting any drafting onus on any particular individual. So yeah. it's more about information. Which is kind of about, you know, it has to be open source. Yeah. With any innovation, there's this delicate balance between sharing, mm. betterment of everybody, mm. and maintaining your IP because mm. you've dedicated time and mm. money into it. That's right. Do you think we're sharing more as an industry? I don't think so, but I think we need to. You know, I think that, again, this goes maybe to the idea of ethics and professionalism. We need to have better forums for sharing information mm. and IP and strategies for making better buildings. Um, as you say, some some ideas, I guess you could say, are commercial, and there you know, could be the Hickory's innovations in prefabrication and so on. That's their commercial you know, IP, and that makes sense for that to not be open source, but strategies about um, designing better high-rise buildings and, and new ways of collaborating in, con- in conceptual design to get better outcomes, that should be open source yeah. because uh, developers, architects, every, you know, engineers, everyone in the industry should see the value of these things because the, the value of those interactions reinforce why certain people should be engaged and paid and, you know, yeah. it, it, and de-risk projects, but also allow us to do better environmental Outcomes, you know, for example, 
through using optimization processes, but but a deeper cross-disciplinary collaboration with WSP, the engineers. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't built it yet, but we came up with a concept design for a 40-storey tower that reduced 15% of the concrete required to build it compared to the standard uh, residential tower of the same height, which is an amazing saving. Yeah. There's a kind of a strategy and a philosophy behind that innovation that, that can be taught and understood and redeployed and also has impacts on town planning strategies and, and um, you know, the way in which we see the city yeah. by collaborating with mill consultants and others. We've, we've discovered ways of, um, you know, getting rid of downdraft from skyscrapers, you know, to, to, to um, improve pedestrian yeah. qualities. We've got, um, you know, methods for using downdraft in a building, again, um, to drive uh, exhaust Mm-hmm. Uh, from car parks and ventilate car parks, so it reduces energy required by ninety percent, for example, of a standard yeah. car park to uh, get rid of fumes and so on. So there's all these things that I think are you know that that have implications on what the city looks like, how a building works, that could be open sourced. But we need a more yeah we need to develop as an industry kind of platforms where these things are shared in yeah. the right the right way. I think it's important. So tell us a little bit about about what, what the design manifesto is and, and I think in particular how, how broad it is. Mm-hmm. I guess in the first instance, the design manifesto is not about style mm-hmm. or, or aesthetics. It's about looking at uh, architectural practice and creativity from a, from a professional perspective, you know, laying out a, a, some simple principles and guidelines and ways of working as, mm-hmm. a, as a culture that allows us to essentially get the best out of each other. Um, and so the manifesto is broken into a series of sort of segments or sections. There's our principles, and our principles are, you know, are based around you know what Rothy Lehman will deliver for our clients each time and every time. And there are ideas that that we can use to exchange within the studio, but we can talk to our clients mm-hmm. about generous eye for life, humble innovation, yep. you know, these kind of simple simple ideas. Um, but they they become useful to kind of focusing energy and so on. But also then there's the sort of strategies, which are about how do we how do we unpack projects, how do we start working together in a collaborative sense, and then how do we implement them within the practice, how do we work together, how do we measure success, etc. So that's sort of how the document's broken down. And do you think this is, in terms of the document's creation, mm-hmm. has it been a, a ground-up movement, lots of people coming together saying this is what we want it to be, or is it kind of more a bit of a line in the sand building on some existing principles, obviously, but this is where we're going. Yeah, I think it is a line in sand. And I think it's a, whilst it has emerged from, as you said, um, sort of founding principles that the practice had, but also it's an acknowledgement from a practice level about how we need to position our business moving mm. moving forward so to make sure that we've got, you know, agency on the floor that all our staff are, are fully activated and utilised and enjoying what they're doing, that our clients and the industry and the cities and so on can, can understand what we stand for, what we're trying to achieve, which I think is really, really imperative. We can start to build a more objective foundation for communication within and without our studio yep. to allow for better outcomes and for more co- sort of deliberate discussions about how to improve improve our cities. And it's an acknowledgement also about the sort of the nature of practice slowly changing or constantly changing and trying to yeah trying to look at that more carefully and, and get ready for it i'm interested in that that sense of constant change a manifesto feels like it's one point in time mm. how do you feel like this sets your practice up for change i think that there's been a um 
trajectory of practice, especially in the commercial side of practice that's, that's been on a path for a certain amount of time, all practices are trying to redirect that, that trajectory. And that trajectory is, is being influenced by lots of things. Mm-hmm. One is productivity, how you actually deliver your service is changing and how challenging that is, is changing within every practice. So how do you still, how do you actually innovate? How do you actually find new things? How do you, how do you grow uh, your own internal position on, on architecture at the same time delivering things in shorter time frames, yep. time frames? And at the same time, I guess, dealing with the changing in expectations in, in the market. So, you know, there was a, obviously there's a huge boom in capital over the last sort of 20 years or 30 years that's radically changed the city. But obviously everyone that's involved in the creation of the city now has changed their position, I think, about what the future should be and realising that if over 90% of all our uh, infrastructure essentially is going to be delivered through speculative capital investment, then we need to think of ways in which that we can help direct those those investments to the betterment of our cities and so on. So when it comes to the, the sort of point in time, I guess you could think of it maybe more as a tipping point from mm. you know moving from one method of practice that that carried forward a lot of old older ideas, yep. I guess about what the architect's role is in the city and so on, and then acknowledging that that role is now changing. So the manifesto, you know, sort of talks about shared ethics and principles, things that can also, A, a evolve, but B, I don't think are fixed in time, yeah. but they're, they're more about an attitude. So, for example, what I expect to happen, I guess, uh, is that we, over, over time at Rothy Loan, when we start to, to offer more and more services for our clients and for the city that aren't specifically to do just with designing buildings, mm-hmm. but the ability of, of um, us as a practice to unpack and analyse cities in new ways uh, and specific ways grounded by those principles allows us to offer i think specific advice and other strategic advice to you know institutions clients cities in in new ways which will then in turn underpin our work because if you think about it how do you make time for design like how do you make time for practice how do you how do you actually ensure that you're always doing the right thing and sometimes it's the way you play the game that mm-hmm. that creates that time and that space you know it's not just about literal time so one of our principles in, in our manifesto is about working ugly. And what working ugly is about, it's, a, it's an easy name to remember, but what it's really about uh, is both an internal thing and an external strategy. So the idea of allowing for cross-disciplinary collaboration amongst all sorts of entities from city, city planners, from engineers and others, yep. uh, with, with also within a creative team within Rothy Lohman that might be mixed or blended between all sort of levels of different expertise, people who, there's designers, architects, there's people who are interested in technical aspects of building but also and delivery, but also people who might be interested in marketing and other things. We build sort of strategic think tanks and teams and we work, inverted commas, ugly for a period of time to unpack and dig to find all the potential of a particular project, to look at it from multiple angles and so on before we worry about the synthesising that into a single solution. So that we want to, I mean, I've always believed that sort of you know, 90, 90% of all the costs and complexity in a building is things you can't see. And if, you, yep. if you're able to analyse those and bring them to bear, and some of those things are political, they're not specific to the object itself, they can be, you can then influence them. And if you control those things, you can drive towards a, a better outcome and, uh, and innovate. And, uh, and I think, you know, there's a, I mean, if I keep talking, there's a really good example of, uh, of this, I think, um, at Rothy Lohman, before I joined... Mm-hmm. which is a really innovative project, um, which is the Habitat project in South Melbourne. The, the client was a 
sort of a client and build a joint together to make a new group called Maxvic to deliver that building. But it was, for its time, and it's still talked about, it's one of the most innovative buildings in Melbourne. So it's built near the freeway, South Melbourne. It's the, I think it was the, well, I believe it's the first Sky Garden mm-hmm. apartment project in Australia. I'm not sure that there's any been built since then, actually. As an example of Working Ugly, that project, in theory, was an unbuildable site. The planning overlay at the time required, if you wanted to build an apartment building, that all balconies had to be external, yep. you know, sort of hanging out on the outside of the building. So it was about 10, 15 years ago, this was, I think. But it was next to the freeway. It was exposed to wind and weather. Everyone knew that those balconies, balconies would be unusable and, and, you know, not effective. So the team, you know, as one example, the team said, well, what if we solve that problem of unusable balconies? collate all the area that would have gone into those balconies, consolidate them into these large sky gardens, distribute the sky gardens throughout the building vertically. Each sky garden is three stories tall. It's shared by 15 apartments. It becomes a sort of micro or or smaller communal spaces that are distributed through the building. It's inboard of the building. It allows the the lift core to have natural light over three stories. So there's this Mm. beautiful experience as you enter your level that you look into these courtyards effectively in the sky you know, radicalises, so I guess, this idea of how you inhabit a high-rise building, protects from acoustics, wind, and so on, and then also allows for a more generous, because it's more efficient to build, a more generous apartment, so slightly larger than they were yep. offered at, at the time and so on. And then in turn, the, you know, the building itself being near the freeway needed to deal with acoustics. So then, again, another innovation in regards to the structural walls, so not wasting, not adding columns and cladding yeah. and so on, so a better environmental strategy related to unifying all those elements into one synthesised form. And all these these sort of ideas, which are actually very interesting and very innovative, had to be negotiated through the city and through yeah. planning, and all of them were against, you know, pushing against the, the standard model. But because the team was able to deploy what I believed, you know, to be a really objective strategy, as, as in they're able to demonstrate the advantages of all these things. They weren't simply ideas or aesthetics yeah. or, or, you know, style choices or concepts. They were actually very, very professional, you know, analytical, demonstrable um, kind of concepts that were that was thorough all the way down from, you know, the usage of materials to acoustic performance. And because of that unified strategy that required fantastic engineers and all the other consultants working together collaboratively to get an outcome. They got the permit, the building was built, you know, and it's a very successful and interesting mm. apartment building as a model. And, you know, Rothley Lohman were able to do that throughout their, you know, their history as well. And what, But what we want to do is be able to do that whenever we need to each time to get the right outcomes for each place to make them the most habitable, the most generous, you know, yep. and the most ethical projects. Thanks, Ben and Jonathan. Join us next week when we continue this conversation in Episode 2. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review, and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast... Please subscribe and rate us.